You say you're religious. Show me the reality of that claim by the way you lead your life. The Bible actually never uses the term religion except in an ironic way. You say you're religious? You make that claim? Somehow you take pride in that? And then it takes you to a deeper level and forces you to answer a deeper question. How are you living your life? But many people say these days, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Are you spiritual? What does that mean? What does that mean that you're spiritual? We're spending several weeks trying to unpack that. If you're spiritual, that means you have an intimate relationship with God. We've been um, entering into that experience even during our time of worship, although it's not guaranteed. And just because we have a worship team in front and because we are invited to sing and because the words are flashed up, it doesn't mean it's happening, not automatically. It's something that happens in your heart. So is it happening in your heart? Not just an external profession or external ritual or external practices, but something happening deep down inside your heart. Are you connecting with God at that level? Do you know how? Do you know who he is? Do you know how to reach out to him? Do you know that he's already reaching out to you? To be spiritual is to have a growing relationship with God, growing in the sense of knowing him at a deeper and deeper level, knowing about him, knowing what he does, knowing who he is, and knowing him as in he invites you into a personal communication, into a personal relationship with him. Really. And that's something that once it begins will captivate you will become the priority of your life. And will begin to instill in you, and we've been talking about this, a deep integrity. Because once you know you're loved by him, you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to put up an image anymore. You don't have to try to impress us anymore. You can slowly but surely let all of that go, that facade, and develop a deeper kind of character that is modeled upon him and happens as you're in this relationship with him because you will become like the person you spend time with, the person you're focused on. And if that's God, if that's God in Christ, if that's the picture, if it's God's word that begins to form your character, then something is happening inside of you and you become like him. And then, and this is kind of surprising, I think, I don't know that you are expecting this as we talk about the five foundations of spiritual maturity. Um... Something happens to your emotions as well. And most of us kind of thought our emotions were out of bounds. God, God doesn't care about emotions. Emotions aren't important. Let's just not talk about them. It's kind of uncomfortable to talk about them. But the Bible is full of emotion, full of passion, full of feeling. And uh, we know that emotions can get out of control. We know that they can become very hurtful. Um, we know that they can turn into uh, uh, acted out emotion that isn't helpful. And that's why we need to have our emotions discipled and, uh, and shaped and retrained. We have to be reparented. We come out of a family of origin, which is you know, the family you grew up in. And there are great blessings, and there are some things that are not quite so blessed. 
And uh, as you now become someone who takes responsibility for the person you are and for following Christ, if that's your choice, your emotions become part of that project. And today, we venture into a different area that might be a little surprising as well and just as challenging for us. Okay, so I'm supposed to take these emotions. I can't deny them. I can't just act, act them out, whatever I feel. I have to own them and then submit them to God and say, Lord, take these emotions. Do something with them. Help me understand I'm watching people come in with costumes on and I'm a little distracted because they're so amazing. <laughs> And there are some more outside, too. Where was I? That is brilliant, Bino. I really like that. Oh, yes, thank you so much. And you would know that, Mary. You would know that. And Lord, take these emotions and all this mass of feeling, which sometimes feels quite chaotic, and sort them out and help me reorder them so that I can have a healthy relationships with people, which is then our topic for the day and next week and uh, hopefully for the rest of our lives because we're always working on this. It's not about achieving this. It's about becoming this. And it's about a growing experience so that we talk about a relational range, a spiritually mature person. Here's the thesis for the day is constantly expanding their emotional range, their ability to relate Um, If Jesus is our model, look at the relational range that he had. Astonishing, scandalous even, often with the quote-unquote wrong kind of people. Um, For a man who was a holy man, for a man who was a rabbi and who was revered and sounded prophetic, he sure hung out with the wrong people. And built relationship with people who were out of bounds. Whether they were Jews or sometimes even occasionally those Gentiles. Who would contaminate you if you spent any time with them. There were all kinds of rules and regulations and rituals and customs and traditions. That kept your relational range very constricted and very tight. And that is still the case today in our world. Even though we have a veneer of, of, of tolerance. That's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the model. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Here's a passage. And I hope you don't really have any doubts that the Bible is all about relationship from beginning to end. It's about relationship with God, with each other. What kind of relationship? And what, what, what sort of relational range are we talking about? Now, I want you, as I, as I read this passage, to listen for the different kinds of people, the different kinds of relationship that we're invited into. And I want you to put yourself into this passage, because this speaks to you, I hope. And here's the headline over the whole passage. Love must be sincere. We'll come back to that in a minute. Love must be sincere. That's how you get started. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's the group inside. That's the the brotherhood, the sisterhood. That's... 
Those are the people who are part of your family already. It's hard enough there. Now it gets even tougher. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, if it is possible. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love must be sincere, the headline over this passage. What does that mean? Love must be sincere. Well, of course, it means that finding an authentic person is a rare find these days. To be in a relationship where people say what they mean and mean what they say, to find a foundation of trust in a relationship, and to build from there, oh, this is magnificent, you guys. I'm sorry. You, you win the prize. If we're giving out a prize today, you are the cutest couple anywhere. Wow. Did I lose my train of thought again? Love must be sincere. Love comes from God. So in order for you to have a sincere love, you've got to be tapped into the source of love. You've got to start right there. In other words, you can't just start from your own baseline of experience. It's not adequate. It's not. Um, Your love is, is compromised in many ways. Your capacity to love is compromised in many, in many ways because of ways, uh, things you experienced as you grow up, because of, of, uh, of uh, points of view you've absorbed without even know, knowing you've absorbed them, because of pre- walls of prejudice that you have put up, because of your own defensiveness and your own fears about what would happen if you risk loving somebody else. You can't do it by yourself. For love to be sincere, you've got to start out by humbling yourself to receive and revel in the love God has for you. And to just let him put his arms around you. You know, Jesus made that statement as he came and represented God's point of view to us. And he looked at Jerusalem. The city that thought it had it together because it's Jerusalem. The capital city, the religious capital city of the world. Still is today. Still fighting over it and the land. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, speaking on behalf of God, how often I would have put my arms around you and hovered over you and cared for you like a hen takes care of her chicks, but you were not interested. You would not have it. You would not allow it. If you don't begin here, your love will not be authentic. It will be superficial. It will be short-lived and will be very, very selective. And others will have to earn it. And uh, they will lose it as soon as they disappoint you. You want to love authentically, sincerely, deeply, perpetually? Let God love you and show you what that means. So that you're immersed in it. So you're marinating in it. This love comes from God. This love comes now into you and then through you to other people. 
Have you ever felt God's love for the person you're talking to? Not just that you like them. Not just that um, they're part of your clan, your tribe, your generation. But that God himself loves them and you sense that love. And you feel a tremendous love yourself because his love gets it all started. Have you ever been with somebody and you say, I just feel God's love for you. And sometimes they're in a very, very sad place. And you know what? God's love tends to come on stronger when we are lost. The more lost we are, the more obvious, the more evident, the more powerful his love seems. That's sincere love. It comes on stronger when the person is more difficult to love. It doesn't make sense at a human level. We can't do that. The more unlovable unlovable you become, the less likely I am to love you just happened to pick you out of the crowd for some reason. (laughs) Ali, my lovable friend. We long for an unconditional love. It only comes from God because we are conditioned, contingent human beings. It all depends on what's going on and how I'm feeling and how you're performing and what the atmosphere is and whether or not you're part of the same political party that I am. And see, you're all struggling right now because you don't know what my political party is, so you're not sure whether or not you like me or not. And uh, in a week or so, that won't matter anymore. Won't that be nice? (laughs) For a little while. And then that love is full of passion if it's authentic. Notice those words. Spiritual fervor. uh, Devoted to one another out of brotherly love. uh, Filled up with zeal. This is not a love that that just sort of quietly sits there and goes passive. Love is active. Love gives. For God so loved, he gave. Love doesn't just talk about its love. Love demonstrates its love. A lot of talk about love. Talk is cheap. We know that. We don't believe everything we hear. We need to see a demonstration of this love. And so as you begin to absorb this love and become a conduit for this love and your love begins to um, fill up with a kind of passion, you're energized in this love and by this love because the opportunity to love is, is infinite. There's all kinds of opportunity. There's opportunity right now this morning. There's opportunity on the way out of here. There's opportunity with the little children that we'll be playing with during the Harvest Festival later on. Um, As you go into your day, as you go back to your workplace tomorrow, your home, your school, wherever you are, there's so many opportunities to love like this. But love will not be sincere unless it begins here. With God's love poured into you, pouring out of you, going through you, imperfectly, of course, Um, diluted, yeah, a bit, but more and more taking over your own heart so that there is no part of your heart that is reserved away from God. Don't touch that. Don't go into that place. Don't go into that relationship. No, don't send me there. All of that cripples you and gives you heart problems and will diminish your capacity to do what God has called you to do, what you were born to do. Now, there are so many passages in Scripture that talk about this. This is not a uh, kind of a niche topic. Relational range. So it increases. It goes deeper. This love is deep and this love is wide. 
And uh, some scriptures that I want to just call to your attention or remind you of if you already know them, but, but talk about this. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to get his core teaching, that's where it is, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, if you haven't read the Gospels or have been sort of away from them for a while, go back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You get the core teachings of Jesus. What is he about? The kingdom of God is what he's about. And drawing us into this relationship with God so that God has his way in your life. And so that you respond to his commands, and his commands are all summed up in loving God with all of your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving every way, every opportunity, and opportunities you never even knew that you had. And so Jesus said this, speaking of broadening, widening the range of your relationships, loving relationships. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Wouldn't it be interesting if a church had that as their motto? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, it probably would be honest if most of us would say, yeah, that is kind of my motto. I do love my, I love my neighbor, the people who are like me, and uh, my enemies, of course, I don't. Of course not. But I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He pours out blessing on all of us, deserving and undeserving. If you love those who love you, if that's your entire range, you just love those who love you, what reward will you get? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. That's just natural. That comes natural. We have to do something supernatural here. This love that comes from somewhere else has to take hold in your own heart. And then later on, the Apostle Paul, so from now on, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. A worldly point of view. Think of all the worldly points of view. Think of all the worldly prejudices we have. Some of them have affected you. You're sitting here right now carrying some prejudice. Some of it might be very, very unconscious. Some of it might be very intentional. I don't know. That's the worldly point of view. That's the way it is until God intervenes. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. This this love that God gives us is about reconciling people who are divided, where there's a gap. And we're apart and we look at each other across this gap with great suspicion and great fear and uh, sometimes just uh, a total indifference. In fact, if you really want to hurt me, <clears throat> I mean, it'll, it'll hurt me if you cuss me out. If you're mean to me, I don't like that. But if you really want to hurt me, just ignore me. Just ignore me. I heard a, a, a young lady, um, she was part of a, a gathering, and she got up and she, she read a poem that she had written. And the poem was called invisible she didn't read the poem she recited it she didn't recite it she i don't even know how to describe what kind of because it came from someplace deep inside of her invisible about how she feels invisible because of her background and because of her minority status in a larger group and she 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 spoke this and tears were streaming down her face as she spoke it 
about how invisible she feels. And uh, I have seldom been as deeply moved as I was by listening to another human being talk about their condition of aloneness, of, of insignificance, and of hopelessness. And I bet most of us in some way can relate to that. We have felt that. Just ignored, just counted as, as nothing. You don't matter is often the message we get. And love counteracts that. With you matter so much. You matter so much more than you know. God made you. God loves you and came after you. And because of that, and because I feel that, and because I believe that, I do too. And you do matter. You matter to me. And often when I convey that message, suddenly you begin to have a little bit of hope that maybe I do matter to God. Maybe we get to actually send that good news out to people who feel invisible. Another passage where Paul kind of exemplifies this condition and what he pleads for us to do. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We have opened our hearts wide to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. And how expansive is this supposed to be, this love that God is pouring out into this world? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So as we think about the family that God is assembling, you know, this family of families, this family where where those backgrounds are interesting and enriching for all of us, but never dividing us, and never a point of looking down or looking up, because we're all at the same level. We're all in this together. And uh, so ethnic, class, gender, all one in Christ. Well, somebody might ask me at this moment, what if I'm meeting the, the person and they're not a Christian? Does God's love extend, extend to them? Yeah. No question about that. Loves the world. There are people who have not discovered that. There are people who are currently refusing that. There are people who uh, walk away from us in the discussion. People who are longing for it and aren't sure how to get it. And so we not only love those who are at this moment making that profession, we love those who are being drawn to him. We're, we, we love because, because he loves. And he loved first even before there was any response. So love comes first. And love helps create the response. So you don't walk away from someone because they're not where you think they should be. Love is going to help them get there. Does that guarantee they'll get? No, no, it doesn't guarantee. People have choices. But they'll choose based on the love that they experience. I think we've got it backwards sometimes. You know, I, I, I love you once you've arrived. Well, how do you arrive? You arrive because someone has loved you in the right direction. Didn't someone love you in the direction you're going in right now? Don't you feel that from somebody? Isn't that how you're moving along? You get to be part of that now, part of creating that momentum, the momentum that God's love has begun. Another verse very similar. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Barbarian or Scythian, barbarian. Do you have any friends who are barbarians? They're just kind of uncouth. They just have no class. They say the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing. They wear the wrong clothes. Uh, they don't have you know, the right manners. 
Have any friends like that? Do you know anybody like that? You work next to somebody like that, you would never choose them as your friend. You would never ever end up in the same universe together if you had your way. And God says in his word, I'm doing something about that. I'm, I'm, I'm rubbing out those lines. I'm bringing down those walls, and I'm using you to do that. I'm using you to do that. Are you willing to be the one who's expanding your relational range? That you don't need everything lined up and making you feel comfortable to be secure. I'm enough for you. My love's enough for you. Now you're secure. You can relate to anybody. There are no boundaries anymore. It doesn't mean that you're approving of everybody that you meet and everything that they're doing, but it does mean that you are loving them in my name. And you're loving them, and you're suspending judgment over their behavior, and you're inviting them into a consideration of the God who produces this love. You're making it real. Love must be sincere. People have to feel that. People need to feel that when they're with us. We need to share that with each other, and then the boundaries begin to expand. They go on. You know, um, Matthew 28, Jesus talks about sending his disciples now. The risen Christ is speaking to his disciples, and he says, expand your relational range. Go and disciple the nations. In Greek, the word is ta ethne, the ethne, the ethnics. Go out there and find them. People you've never heard of. People you're not comfortable with. People you won't understand. I will give you my love for them. And by the way, because I've had many opportunities to cross cultural boundaries, I find out that when I do, well, two things happen. Number one, I do a lot of stupid things. You ever had that experience? You say the wrong thing, you're trying to speak another language, and you you say something really embarrassing. I was in Mexico. My friend was in Mexico with me. Um, I know a little bit of Spanish. He obviously knows a lot less than I do. And we're meeting this family for the first time. And here's the father greeting us in Spanish. And so I greet him back. And my friend, who I'm sure meant to say, uh, mucho gusto, you know, much pleasure in meeting you. Instead of that, he said, besame mucho. Which means I want to kiss you a lot. Which comes from some song somewhere. It was the wrong words. But you know what? The man smiled. He knew that he had sort of misspoken, and he appreciated the mere attempt of this gringo to try to speak his language, learning somebody else's language, or trying to. Even stepping into their world is an act of love. Even if you look foolish doing it, are you willing to look foolish as you try to love in the name of Jesus? I hope so. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? You look foolish. You might offend somebody at some point in time. But it's amazing how love overcomes even those disadvantages. That's why most of us don't even start in those relationships because I'm not sure how to do it. I'm repelled by certain things I I see and don't understand. And on my side of it, I think probably I'm going to say something wrong here and it's not going to come through. And so we defeat ourselves with our own words from the very beginning. It's so self-defeating. Love takes risks. Love crosses barriers and takes huge risks. I was a a guest uh, teacher in a high school, public high school. I was there for a whole week. And I was there because they were studying the 1960s, which none of you remembers. And I'm a child of the 60s, so I was talking about various parts of that world. And they were fascinated, like, you lived through the 60s? Wow. 
I felt kind of Jurassic. And I got up one day and I, 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 I asked this question. I said, now imagine these 16, 17-year-olds that uh, you, you know, you're living in your home, wherever you live, and the house next door to you becomes vacant. And, uh, of course, you don't have this choice, but let's imagine you have the choice of actually filling this house with, uh, with any group of people or any kind of people you want. You have a choice here. And I put 10 different groups on the board, 10 different ethnic groups on the board. Now, I want you to rate them from most preferred to least preferred. What a terrible question. A total trap, and they fell right into it. And so they went into it. Now, I can just imagine a student out there looking at this list and realizing, okay, next to me is a person on this list. Where am I going to put them? And the person who isn't in the room, I can put them wherever I want. And because of where the world was at that time, number 10, the last, the least preferred, Iranians. And there was a girl in the class I happen to know from Iran. And uh, later on in the conversation, she identified herself as Persian. Because you don't want to be Iranian if you're lowest on the list. If that year you are down at the bottom. And we had this discussion, and I drew out of them all the prejudice that was in this. And they were a, it was a pretty diverse school, by the way. And they had all these stereotypes of all of these groups. And I thought, wow, we claim we believe that we should all be equal that we should not discriminate. And even here among the youngest and the most innocent, they have learned, they have absorbed all the prejudice of their own families and of the world around them. And if you give them half an opportunity and kind of you know, ask them, you know, forget the politeness, tell us what you really think. And what they really think is not very encouraging. And I watched this poor Iranian girl kind of sink into her chair and try to become invisible so that she could escape the judgment that she felt coming at her. So what are, we, what are we called to do? I could tell you more about that, that class and the places we went, but it, it, it just sort of was a, a revelation to me that we have a lot of work to do. And though we claim we believe in this ideal, our experience contradicts it constantly. It may be that you and I, if we take this seriously, are the people who are going to make the difference in the world. I mean, where else does this love come from? And who else is willing to practice this? And though we're quite imperfect at doing it, we've got a laboratory right here. We really do. We can go somewhere with this, and we can make a profound difference in the world because God makes a profound difference in the world. So notice what's going on in this passage. Um, There are different kinds of people that we're supposed to relate to. Those who are in need, share what you have. Okay, just take that as one of the things that you can do about this. Okay, so what am I going to actually do? What am I going to practically do? If someone's in need, you share with them. If someone's part of a kind of permanently needy class, they have great needs because they're in a a low condition, um, you associate with them. You're willing to associate with all kinds of people. You can go up, you can go down, you can go sideways. Again, there are no barriers if God is the one who is authorizing your life. Because his love will impel you. It will send you there. And you'll be intrigued and you'll want to know and you can't wait to show them the love that they don't know they're going to get. That, that they already have if they would awaken to it. That God is there. And then, of course, there are enemies. And there are persecutors. 
And our natural reaction is to curse, uh, not to bless. And God says, okay, counterintuitively, because of what I have done, because I am changing the world. I want to change your world. I want to change your heart. And now I want you to learn to bless those who curse you. This last Saturday, I performed a memorial service, a funeral for a World War II veteran, 91 years old. On December 7, 1941, he was at Pearl Harbor. He was at the Hickam Air Base. He was strafed. He was bombed. He saw people die. He saw people wounded. He went on to, uh, to spend his career in that war and watch the end of that war and came out of it a Christian man, already a Christian, continuing to be a Christian, and came out of that with a deep hatred of the Japanese. And, of course, he didn't use the word Japanese. He shortened it, okay, the racist term. And his children caught that disease. And uh, I just heard a couple of things that reminded me, uh, wow, they really do have uh, uh, animosity towards all things Japanese, and especially Japanese people. And I just heard it, and I heard it in the humor, and I heard it in the comments. And uh, um, I had an opportunity afterwards after the reception, now we're having dinner. I'm talking to the four grown children now, all Christians, three, three and a half of them Christians. And I said, uh, have you ever heard the story of Mitsuo Fuchida? I said. That sounded Japanese to them. <laughs> so they kind of winced. Who's he? Well, he's actually the man who led the raid on Pearl Harbor. He is the man, he was the pilot who was the first one in, and he gave the orders, Torah, Torah, Torah. The raid has begun. And that incredibly successful raid, from the Japanese point of view, that crippled the Pacific fleet, um, was over within a matter of a couple of hours and left the Pacific fleet decimated and lots of people dead on the ground. And uh, he went on to become a, uh, an ace in the uh, Japanese Air Force. Finally, was wounded in action himself and was in the hospital. And during the time in the hospital, heard that the emperor decided to surrender. And he was furious. He was enraged because he had a deep hatred in his heart for these Americans. And after the war was over, he wandered the street full of, streets full of despair. Mitsuo Fuchida. You could look it up. He read a pamphlet written by an American aviator who was shot down over Japan, held as a POW, tortured, and finally released. And this pamphlet was about forgiveness. And behind it, of course, was God's love. Fuchida read this, and he hated it and was drawn to it at the same time. Forgiveness was the last thing that he wanted to do, but the only thing he could ever do to be released, to be saved, from his terminal despair. And so, finally, he relented and he committed his heart to Christ. Mitsuo Fuchida. And he showed up in 1966 at the Pearl Harbor Survivor event that they have every year, December 7th, at Pearl Harbor. He showed up and he began with his uh, asking for forgiveness for what he had done. Along the way, he talked about the need that he had to do to forgive because of what had happened to his beloved Tokyo in air raids. And then he told them about what had happened to his own heart and how God has changed his heart and put 
his love in his heart. And he handed the survivor who had been there that day when he had led the raid, handed him a Bible. And I've seen the picture, and it's an incredible image, a symbol of what we could we would never expect to happen in this world because that should never happen. Those two people should never meet, and if they do, they'll try to kill each other. But what if God's love intervenes? What if God's love breaks down the ball? What if God's love extends our boundaries and our territory? So I told these four adults that story. And I said, I hope that you will not carry on the tradition of your father, a wonderful man who got it in so many ways but missed it here because of his experience. Let's recognize that he was entitled to that anger. But you don't want to live with it. You don't want to keep it going. You don't want to make it your legacy. I said, let's, let's, let's go past that. Is God's love big enough? And can it heal your heart so that you can open your heart finally and begin to develop relationships with people you might put up walls against and then fail to be blessed by and you can't bless them? That is the state of our world right now. What would the world be like if we lived like this? So last Wednesday night, I went to the World Series game. Never been to the World Series game. Ever since I was a little boy, would love to go to a World Series game. There I am, AT&T Park. I won't tell you how I got the tickets. I did not pay for them. I call up my wife at noon because I was given the tickets at noon. Total surprise, total shock. I said, hey, we're going to the game tonight. She said, no way. I said, we're going to the game tonight. Are you putting me on? I told her five times. She disbelieved me five times. I had to give her the phone of the guy who gave me the tickets so that, she, so that he could prove to I have no credibility with my own wife. <laughs> we show up at the game. Now, I don't want to talk too long about the game because I know that there were a few of you who didn't go. <laughs> and you're feeling out of it. I'm kind of unloved. First of all, I did feel the extravagant love of God for me. Like, Lord, are you kidding? Wow. This is really sweet. You get there, all these fans. Okay? And their fans are from all kinds of backgrounds. And there's something very powerful about coming together around a common cause. Even if it's baseball. Not an ultimate cause, but a cause. And then something a little more serious happened. Because as you came in, they gave you a placard. And it said, stand up to cancer. And then there was a little space. You wrote the name of somebody you know who has cancer. And you wrote their name. So my wife and I wrote Michelle's name there because she's about to go into serious cancer treatments. That was very moving. That was very moving. What can you accomplish when you let down the barriers and you begin to focus on what really matters? And then, of course, there's the team itself. And the thing I love about this team, because they're not the most talented bunch of guys in the world, really, but they're the best team. And Terrence made me promise not to say they're going to sweep because I'll just jinx it by saying that. <laughs> so I won't say that. But they will. <laughs> so. Because nobody ever comes back after being down that far, right? Except for the Giants. <laughs> Whenever you read a quote, 90 plus percent of the time when you read a quote from somebody on the Giants, they're bragging about somebody else on the team. Not about themselves. They don't talk about themselves. That's highly unusual for a celebrity or a star athlete making millions of dollars not to talk about himself. 
But when you get a hold of something, when God works in your heart, you don't think so much about yourself. You're thinking about other people. And imagine if for a secular cause, this kind of unity, which the Bible stresses so much, if you could build this kind of unity around an ultimate cause of reaching out to the people that God wants us to reach out to, to care for, to, to, to show compassion to, to weep with those who weep and to, and, to, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. If we were freed and could join together to do this, there isn't anything we couldn't accomplish. I mean, imagine a couple hundred people, you know, GRX, you know, loving like this and committed now to taking this love that we're experiencing and constantly trying out on each other and expressing with passion to each other and sacrificing for each other and now taking it out to the world, into your neighborhoods and your community and your workplace. I know we're in a tough place. We're on the peninsula. We're in the South Bay. We're in Silicon Valley, you know. Nobody cares. Nobody's interested. Oh, don't believe it. Everybody wants to be loved. There's more loneliness here, behind closed doors, behind the image. Expand your relational range. I want to leave you with two assignments, should you choose to accept it. Number one, because love has to go deep as well as go wide. Number one, there's somebody you're just taking for granted. You need to go much deeper and show a much more love of God's love. Who is that person? Might be the person you're sitting next to right now. I don't know. The person you live with. I don't know. Could be a friend. Somebody that needs your love. Needs God's love showing up through you. Do it. Show them them your love. Get back on track with that. That's what God wants. And of course, you'll be blessed in doing it. It always happens that way. And secondly, let's talk about extending your range now. Let's talk about expanding your capacity even as I've been talking about, you know, different kinds of prejudice, where is it that you sort of, I don't go across that barrier, I don't talk to those people, I don't relate. I want you to, think of, I want you to rethink that now in view of God's love for you and for them. Cross that boundary. Where is that boundary? It's a man-made boundary. It's not God didn't put it there. We put it up somehow to protect ourselves and to keep them out. What boundary do you need to cross? Give, and you say, I don't know that I can do that. I know you can't. But, but God can empower you. I leave you with those two assignments. Let's pray.